0: It is March 16th, Monday evening, and it's cold and raining. I'm back in Sacramento after going home to fetch more clothes and make sure my poor roommate understands the very particular nuances of each of my cats, who were happy to see me upon my return on Saturday. And of course I cried like an idiot saying goodbye to them so quickly. How can I, I swear to God, <laughs> it's like, it was like i leaving my child. I cried and cried on the way up here yesterday about leaving my cats, but they're happy and safe and my roommate is there and these are strange times. Wherever you are and however you're taking care of yourself, thank you for tuning in. Today, I have some odds and ends. and, and, and I think the ends, as we end, will be good. But let me just catch you up on a few things. First, if you're interested, I am doing three online talks this week about the Ventura story. This is the same talk that I was doing live until I got coronavirus I believe that is now a verb. It's when you get knocked off the schedule or things don't go the way you planned because of the coronavirus. So um, I have three days this week and three times. I essentially set a time for West Coast, a time for the East Coast, and a time for anybody in Europe because I have a few people in Europe. And Australia, you're going to have to just figure out what works for you because I know I also have a few folks from Australia that follow. So I have set three days and three times, and it's going to be online. I hope there's a time that works for everybody. I'm going to use Zoom, which is a video conferencing tool. And all you have to do is you have to register to get a login. So basically, it just gives you a credential so you can get in, but you have to register. So the place to do that is on my main website, J C J C A R O L E dot com forward slash events and there you'll see that i have three different registration links that take you that go to zoom that register you for that meeting and then it should give you a way to add it to your calendar so you can keep track and remember to come in on that date and time if for some reason you miss one of the live events I mean, hopefully you'll be able to come because I'm hoping people can, we can talk, like we can do Q&A and stuff and you can ask me questions and I can answer any that I have answers to. Um, But if, if something were to go wrong, I'm going to post one of them, the best one, which God knows which one that'll be, but I'm going to post one of them to my YouTube channel, The Lawyer's Daughter. Yes, I'm everywhere now because I have nothing but time. (laughs) So, okay. Anyway, Grab that registration link at jcarol.com forward slash events, and then let's see if we can get some community going around this. Um, I'll be doing this from what I now call my dorm room, which is um, my affectionate name for my bedroom at Katie's house. Um, it is not pretty, but it is functional, and my permanent bed is an air mattress, But it is, but but I have a foam topper on top, which makes it quite lovely, so it's actually really comfortable. Um, but the backdrop in this room is god-awful, but you can deal with it. If I can deal with it, you can deal with it. Lord knows we're all doing things we, we did never expected right now. Okay, now on to buckle swabs. Buckle being my new favorite word, and fun fact, it's not the same kind of a swab as used for the coronavirus. Those are apparently nasal swabs that feel like they're entering your brain and they also do a throat swab, but that's not the point. I'm digressing. Let's get back to the kind of swabs we care about. Um, You can't even get a test anyway, so don't even start worrying about it. As for those buckle swabs that we were all waiting for, the ones from D'Angelo in which we were approved on Thursday to obtain four kits, each containing two swabs, I got a text from Cheryl Temple, the prosecutor from Ventura on Saturday morning, apologizing for not getting back to me sooner because you know I was chasing that right away. Anyway, she her words exactly, DNA swabs selectively, su- DNA sw- swabs successfully collected. Ventura's was booked Thursday night and submitted to the lab yesterday. That was Friday morning for analysis. All good. So there, cross that one off your list. We've gotten the additional DNA. I'm going to just keep praying that he does not get sick from coronavirus and die. I know they're taking every precaution there, but gosh, people are human, and I God love the guards who are working in our jails. It's gotta be rough, and they've and I hope to goodness they're doing their best to make sure they're not carrying virus, but we all know now this is all a big crapshoot. OK, so let's switch gears. Here's another odds and end um, here from Reddit. This was an interesting thing on Reddit on the E-A-R-O-N-S sub Reddit on Sunday. So if you I'm really still not a professional at Reddit It and it's a it's a it's a mad max of social media is what it is. That's all I can describe it as. So you can get taken out pretty quickly on Reddit if you're not in a friendly area or if you say something that in any way you aren't supporting or other people think that you're dumb, which is just weird because I, how would other people know if what somebody's saying is true or not? But OK, whatever. Like I said, Mad Max, everybody's shooting, everybody running. It's crazy. But the EAR ONS sub happens to be a bit more civilized, at least in my experience. But of course, it says I'm a victim in there. So I think I get a little bit of good, great treatment. But there was somebody who posted in there and I just wanted to share it with you because I thought it was interesting and it's a perfect thing to discuss, discuss on your own with your friends on the phone. If you're into doing your um, unsub analysis, if you if you like to go figure out how people work, here's what the person posted. I write psychological assessments for incarcerated individuals as part of my job. Now, mind you, they're not giving us their credentials. They're just saying this is what they do. They write the psychological assessments for incarcerated individuals as part of their job. Let's go on. I've met notorious serial killers, drug fiends, you name it. I also happened to follow this case for years leading up to JJD's arrest. So I've given a good deal of thought to the limited knowledge available. That's really important, by the way, because... Let's face it, all of us have limited knowledge. We aren't on the inside, and so we are having to use our best guesses. So just please, with, the ca- with this caveat, know that they readily admitted they have n- limited knowledge. Okay, let's go on. I see a lot of conjecture on this sub about the psychological makeup of this dude. The idea of whether he's faking frailty, whether he can experience emotions like shame, guilt, regret love, etc. But honestly, there is very little informed input relating to what exactly is happening in JJD's mind. So I want to give my best informed opinion given my limited knowledge. Sociopaths don't necessarily feel emotions. So D'Angelo likely doesn't fall into that category. Considering accounts from the crimes like his sobbing, as well as accounts from co-workers and family that imply he was at least human... (laughs) That was my laugh, not anybody else's. I just found that kind of worthy of a little giggle. Okay, (laughs) that he was at least human. We can assume he's not a total sociopath. He has emotions, makes connections with others, etc. Additionally, the organization, planning, and real-world life successes, like having the same job for so long, almost eliminates untreated psychosis. I'm curious if he's ever been on medication. Narcissists, on the other hand, do feel emotions, but they tend to hide from the bad ones or overcome them to the detriment of others. For example, narcissists can't stand feelings of shame. They would do almost anything to eliminate them. In the context of sexual or physical shame, one coping tool for a fragile ego could be rape. Perpetrating enough acts in this manner could even counter the feelings of shame permanently, as if providing a psychological buffer for D'Angelo's ego. Example being his subconscious saying, I may have this tiny penis, but I've done a lot with it, which is why it's not impossible that he really did stop as some offenders do. Okay, so what he's saying, okay, as I understand this, the subconscious is saying, rationalizing okay, my penis may be insignificant. (laughs) Sorry. Oh my God. I've just cracked myself up tonight. Yes. His insignificant penis. But the point is he's done a lot with it. So that might've compensated and allowed him to stop if he did, because that actually provided the fulfillment that this, that this guy is proposing, this man or woman is proposing that, um, d'angelo had okay so let me just get back to what he's saying i think it's a he i I don't know i should have looked um that brings us to the present when a narcissist is unable to manipulate the situation as normal they break down they in essence are destroyed for the first time in a long time maybe ever d'angelo's fragile understanding of the world is breaking apart he probably thought he was smarter above the rules different but now he's realizing his own pathetic worth. Once again, narcissists can't stand that. For a lifelong narcissist, it only makes sense how much he's deteriorated. A Hollywood example is the equivalent of taking a matrix pill and waking up in the real world. Dude is probably tripping. None of the guy's 50 plus years of coping responses work when the whole world sees him for what he is. No medical expert, but that level of psychological... Oh, I'm no medical expert, but that level of psychological stress at his age, no matter how healthy he was, is going is going to take his toll. So then, okay, so that was the end of the post. So I weighed in and said, okay, so what you're saying, I think, is that we've crushed his identity. If that's true, that's incredibly satisfying. That means he's experiencing some kind of pain because of us, not experiencing pain not us experiencing pain because of him. This really, like if you want to have a moment to savor, I'm not a huge revenge person, but I don't mind the occasional mind fuck. So what I'm saying here is that um, he's experienced the pain this time because of us and not the other way around. Okay, so this person got back to me and um, followed up a bit here and I just again, wanted to share because I thought it was in- interesting. Here we go. Honestly, yes. Crushed his identity is an excellent way to summarize what I was saying. His whole world is shattered and there's no coming back. For D'Angelo, there's no mental gymnastics capable of overpowering a reality that laughs in his face every moment he's awake. He isn't superior. He's just like every other criminal. If he's the kind of person I think he is, this would be intolerably painful. Just breathe that in, everybody, because this might be all we end up getting, depending on how all these variables play out. If he dies of coronavirus, we're never going to get anything. So I want you to have this moment because it actually I find it satisfying. If he find if he's the kind of person this guy thinks he is, D'Angelo would find this to be intolerably painful. From a standpoint of justice, it's amazing. His age almost doesn't matter as long as his faculties are intact, which they seem to be. If anything, being caught later in life only allowed him to develop more powerful narcissistic extensions and connections in the form of his children, who I see as victims. Because of them, their successes, etc., he had even more to lose and even more powerful witnesses to his loss. Another thing that happened last week. I was with a man who worked in our prison system and he gave me insights about what might happen to D'Angelo if he takes a plea. It seems as like good of time is ready to get into this topic. If D'Angelo is convicted by trial, he will likely get the death penalty. In California, this means he'll be incarcerated on death row at San Quentin. Okay, oh, I'm Sorry. I'm an idiot. I usually put bold when I'm transitioning. Okay. So this is true. I want to go with this. Okay. So let's just transition from what that person said. The other thing that happened last week is something that I went through. So let me back up just a second. So this is really critical what this person is proposing. And I think it's worthy of your consideration. And like I said, this is like the fun of Uh, speculation, right? That if he is this narcissist who has now had his identity crushed and that his in some way every day waking up to realize he is ordinary, like ridiculously ordinary and still has a small penis, he is in pain. That is some cognitive pain. And I do find that delightful. Okay. Now here was my transition. So Yes, another thing that happened to me last week is I happened to be, um, with a person who had some experience of working in our prison system, and he was able to give me some ideas that might be what might happen to D'Angelo if he takes a plea, and since we're talking about this and and people are speculating on this too and kind of want to get more information, I thought I'd dig into this today, because frankly I was exhausted. This I don't know why, but this uh, constant threat of the coronavirus is really tiring. So tomorrow I'm going to do, I think tomorrow I'm going to do a fun in the news to go back to the 80s and take us all back there. But today I thought it'd be really interesting to, um, I did some research on how things work with death row and how things work with if he takes a plea. So here we go. Um, If he, of course, is if he's convicted by trial, so that's what's going to have to happen for him to even get anywhere near the death penalty, which... Y'all know I'm opposed to the death penalty, but that doesn't matter right now because this is just where we are and this, these are the charges filed. So um, if he is convicted by trial, it's very likely he will get the death penalty. And in California, it means he'll be incarcerated on death row at San Quentin. So here are some facts about death row in California. Mind you, we are California and we're always special. Um, and our death row is housing nearly 750 inmates right now. Yeah, you heard that right. It's housing 750 inmates on death row. This is why I think our governor was struggling with what the hell are we doing? Because we haven't executed anyone, I think, and I think it's 2006, but I can't even be sure. I should have looked that up but because I'm not really into the death penalty. That wasn't as salient to me as the fact that there's so many people. And, and let me just take you through a few of the people that are on death row and how long they've been there. The oldest one i could find and i didn't research this for three days i did the research today so the oldest one i found was doug clark and this is how old it is he's one of the sunset strip killers so by the way like that's not even we don't even talk like that anymore that's an artifact of decades ago he's one of the sunset strip killers and he was arrested for rape murder and this is pretty gross necrophilia of seven women He's been on death row for more than 37 years. Why did we not just put him in life without, um, without parole? He should have just had life without parole. Could have saved so much money. He, he did have a partner and I believe it was a woman and she died in prison in 2003. So we haven't paid for her all this time. But had we just, uh, never mind. I'm not going to get political. Let's just keep talking, Jen. No politics. Here we go. Here's another one, Randy Steven Craft. He had a lot of names. He was known as the scorecard killer, the Southern California strangler, and the freeway killer. And he murdered, they think, at least 16 young men between 1972 and 1983. Ah, the golden years of god-awfulness. The majority he killed in California, but they also think that he had committed rape and murder of up to 51 other boys and young men in other locations. He's been on the row for over 30 years. David Carpenter was the trailside killer. He killed five people in the hiking trails near San Francisco. I think that was up. I think that was actually up in, um, it says near San Francisco, but I think that was in Muir Woods if I remember this one. He's been on death row for over 30 years. And then this one I remember so well. Richard Farley was responsible for what old timers like me think of as one of the first workplace murder sprees. This was back in um, 1984. He had a coworker named Laura Black, and he was stalking her. He stalked her for four years. She obtained a temporary restraining order against him in February. This is really important, these dates. And you've probably heard this case. If you're addicted to crime, you probably know this case. But she ordered a temporary restraining order for- against him on February 2nd, 1988. And the court date was set for February 17th. But guess what he did on February 16th, 1988? Oh yeah, he came and shot up the workplace ESL, which was at in Silicon Valley, it's located in a town called Sunnyvale, which is a rather nondescript town because it's one of those towns that bleeds from one town into another Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, San Jose. They kind of bleed together all with their own cute neighborhoods, but Sunnyvale's right there in the heart of it. He killed seven people, including Laura Black, the woman that was trying to get him to leave her alone. I know it sits in my brain because it was a Silicon Valley company and I just joined the ranks 1988. I, I was just, um, I had just started to focus on working in the Valley and I still, I still was up in San Francisco at that point, but it, it stuck in my mind. He's been on death row for more than 28 years. And then we have of course our old favorite who we love to hate and honestly this one i'm i personally probably would pull the switch on richard allen davis he's been there for the abduction and murder of Polly class he's been there 23 years a tragic tragic killer carrie stainer he was the brother of Steven stainer as you remember Steven stainer was the kid who was kidnapped at age seven and held until he was 14. then his brother in a, in a crime that f- it freaked me out. And I swear to God, I think of it every time I go to Yosemite. Um, those three women that were traveling together, Carrie was convicted of murdering, uh, Carol's Sund and her daughter, Julie, and their teenage traveling companion, which was Sylvina. That was in 1999. And then also a Yosemite Institute naturalist, Joey Armstrong. So those murders were all near Yosemite national park. And he was sentenced to death for, for the four murders, and he's been on death row for 17 years. And then, of course, Scott Peterson. And honestly, I can hardly believe this is true. He's been on the row for over 15 years now, which means Connor would have been a teenager, which just blows my mind. Okay, so that's, those are just some of the fine folks of those 750 that are sitting on the row right now. So I went ahead and looked at Death Row. I got on um, Google. If you go look on Google, Google Earth or Google um, Satellite or whatever you want to put in to get to San Quentin, this, this shot is like too pretty. It looks like it's it, it does. It sits on this gorgeous point on the San Francisco Bay. But the thing is, if you haven't been to San Francisco or you don't know, it is but cold I lived in San Francisco for a few years. I love San Francisco, but we rarely get warm days in the city. I mean, it's super rare. (laughs) They even say like, you know, what the coldest winter is the summer I spent in San Francisco. It's true because when the fog comes in, the the wind usually picks up. This even happens in Santa Cruz. The wind picks up around four o'clock and it comes in off the water, which is great because you have clean, damp air, great for your skin, great clean air, but it is so cold and so damp. And I can only imagine with all that concrete at San Quentin, and this place is still, and it is old, old prison. Um, it is, It has got to be very, very uncomfortable. I mean, yay, but it's just got to be a miserable place. So you can look at the pretty picture on the Google Satellite, but it's not what it's really like normally. It's usually really cold. So I, I found this artif- article from an outlet called KC. R W. It's a LA-based news team, and they do a lot of special interest reporting. It looks like they um, syndicate their features to different places, even including NPR. And so I want to read some um, passages from their report, because I thought it was interesting. I was trying to figure out there's not... Reporters haven't really been allowed into San Quentin very often. Um, I have an interesting... Twist that's coming up in a minute from one of the reporters that we know in our case, um, but let me just start here with what they were, what the KCRW group um, published and a, a few snippets from their reporting. Here's one quote: After passing through security checkpoints to get to San Quentin's death row facilities, the sheer number of people awaiting execution in California became much less abstract during a regular midday recreation bre- bre- uh, break. Hundreds of death row inmates talked and milled around an outdoor outdoor exercise yard. Okay. I thought that was interesting because I didn't know that they could come out and mill around and out, I thought they actually had to be separated from each other, but apparently death row inmates are allowed to somehow talk and mill around in an outdoor exercise yard. Hundreds. This is hundreds. So there you go. Oh, if you've got 750, what are you going to do? You can't take them all out one at a time. Okay. The article goes on. Inmates who don't misbehave on death row are allowed to socialize outside their cells. They're also permitted to have small luxuries like television sets, radios, books, and paper. They can also make monitored calls of up to one hour in length to their lawyers and family. That's done when phones on casters are wheeled up to their cells. Okay, I don't know if this is still true, but that's really funny because I would just love to see a phone on a caster. Is anyone thinking of that cool little phone from play school that we all grew up with and we could make the phone ring? Um. yeah, that's a phone on a caster. So, the, okay. So what we did, what I did learn last week is that when a prisoner first arrives at death row, they have to spend six months in the, I love this, adjustment center. I want you just to appreciate them calling this the adjustment center because it kind of sounds, I don't know, friendly, like it's going to help you ease your way in. Yeah, not so much. Here's how it works. The Adjustment Center is is kind of death row within death row, where inmates are allowed fewer privileges and face more security. Adjustment Center prisoners aren't allowed to keep electronics in their cells and must be escorted by two guards instead of one when walking San Quentin's grounds. Now, that's interesting because that kind of implies that you are escorted by one guard when you're walking the grounds, but that still seems like a ratio that they couldn't couldn't have a one-to-one ratio. That would be crazy. Okay, let me continue. When adjustment center inmates are let outside for exercise, each one is kept inside an individual steel cage, similar to what you might imagine seeing in an old-fashioned zoo. The cages are meant to protect the prisoners from each other and ensure the safety of prison guards. As California's condemned Watch the years pass. California's death row continues to grow as more people get sentenced to death, but no one gets executed. San Quentin officials are moving non-death row inmates to other cell, bro- cell blocks to make room for the condemned. Okay, so there you go. Uh, it's overcrowded. They're kind of shoving them into other cell blocks, which I have, I think, a little bit more um, information about this in, in just a second here. That is the crazy that's going on there because of this whole death penalty situation. So now this is the cool part. As I was doing research, I happened to find an, an article by another reporter who was loud in San Quentin, and I'll pay this off in a minute, but let me start with what she writes first. The death row at San Quentin is divided into three sections, the quiet North segregation or North seg built in 1934, 1934, that's a long time ago, for prisoners who don't cause trouble. So that's the North Seg. The East Block, a crumbling, leaky maze of a place built in 1927, and the Adjustment Center for the worst of the worst. Most of the prison's death row inmates reside in the East Block. That's the one that's nearly 100 years old, built in 1927. The fourth floor of the North Block was the prison's first death row facility, but additional death row space opened after executions resumed in the U.S. in 1978. The Adjustment Center received solid doors. Oh, sorry. This is the gross part. Prepare yourself. The Adjustment Center received solid doors preventing gunning down, that's in quotes, gunning down, or attacking persons with bodily waste. A dedicated psychiatric facility serves the prisoners many prison programs available for most inmates are unavailable for death row inmates that includes by the way in other parts of the article i guess the regular inmates even get to see shakespeare not the real shakespeare of course because he's long gone but plays and things i didn't even know that that's i mean i guess that's kind of cool Anyway, fun fact, here we go. This reporting was done by our friend Fra- our friend Paige St. John of the LA Times. And if you aren't, Paige is the one who did Man in the Window podcast. She's fantastic. She covers a lot of what's going on with the D'Angelo trial. I've talked to her. She's delightful. Um, she is. She's a real advocate for us. And I just love that she was the one that walked around San Quentin. Here we go. You can Google her article. It's called A Rare Peak at San Quentin's Death Row um, and Conversations with Inmates Awaiting Their Fates as Political Battles Swirl. And it's, yes, that's the whole title. It's really long. But that was when we were looking at uh, what was going to happen with the death penalty. That's the articles from December 29th, 2015. So I think if you put in Page St. John, San Quentin and December 29th, 2015, you can get her article. She ends her article like this. The execution chamber waiting for them has never been used. It was built in 2008 to answer concerns raised by courts that California's execution methodology and equipment risked delivering a painful death. Bright lights illuminate a green execution gurney housed behind glass with holes in the wall through which unseen persons would inject the lethal four dose. It smells of new paint. All right. So that's the end of page, that's the half page concluded her article. I thought that was really interesting. We have a death row. We have an execution chamber we've never used. Again, you can see why this is controversial in California now. It's just kind of a hot mess. So, okay, if he gets the death penalty, he'll be in the adjustment center for 6 months and then he's sent to the row to rot alone in a very small cell. That's if that's if he gets the death penalty. But but what if he takes a plea? Let's go back to what the defense has done and make all of our heads spin around on our poor little necks. What if he takes a plea? He will likely be placed in something called PC or ADSEG. PC is protective custody. And I found this definition. A PC unit is is a group of inmates segregated from the general prison population for their safety, Prisoners who feel physically threatened by other inmates can request protective custody at any time. The reason they might put him in protective custody is obvious because people are going to try to kill him because child molesters are not looked upon favorably. And he is a child molester because he raped women under 18. Okay, ADSEG seg is is the other thing that he could get, and this is called administration segregation, and it is defined as um, otherwise being called the hole. It's the jail within the prison. Inmates placed in ADSEG are locked in their cells for 23 hours a day with no program and very few privileges, no phones, no TV, very little property. They can still write letters. Um, it's funny because I was looking this up and uh, as I was hunting around the internet, I found this really interesting answer to a question somebody asked about what's it like to live in protective custody. And I can't resist reading this to you because talk about a whole different world. And I'm going to try super hard to not screw this up because but if it sounds weird, it's because it's weird. But here's this answer from a person who was an inmate who was in protective custody, PC, and I'm going to read it in the vernacular, meaning how they wrote it with all their slang, all the prison slang. Here we go. As long as you're not a hothead who lets people's sexual orientation or dropouts and sex offenders, who are the hardest but not impossible to stomach, then it's easy as fuck. Everyone minds their own business and let you do yours as long as you aren't in a PC gang, which is fucking stupid. PC is easy as long as you aren't a simp who follows what your shot callers and key holders, California prison slang for leaders of their prospective groups, then you'll be okay. By the way, a lot of people don't want to admit they were in PC and people like that can't help you. So listen to someone who was in both. I beat the shit out of a Norteño idiot and his little gang tried to gang jump me for it. They sent me to the other side still came out on top because I didn't snitch and came back to the dorm and they didn't do anything but look like lames. They shot me over to PC in Cali called SNY. And at first I was a hothead. I beat the shit out of Chomo, child molesters, cellies. I beat the shit out of Chomo cellies, child molesters, and sent them on suicide watch in order to remove them from my cell. For a while too, I ended up going to shoe for about two years for breaking a Sally's face in the shoe. I calmed the hell down. I put my blinders on and did the easiest time in a level four one eighty yard in Salinas Valley state prison because I was worried about going home. Then whatever the stupid shot collars, but whatever the stupid shot collars wanted me to worry about in PC yards, you have a lot more personal freedom, even if you are with the sickos, but in general pop, you aren't with saints nor with people in any way better than child molesters. (sighs) Okay, that is packing a lot in there, but you can see that this, what I like about this, because I enjoy studying cultures, that prison culture is distinct and there is a lot of judgment. It's funny how hierarchical and how people, no matter where they are, even when we've decided they aren't part of our society, create their own micro cause them in their own micro societies where they are so you've got child molesters chomos and um your celly and the shot callers who are the people that are the leaders of a prospective group i guess that would be i guess uh, an opinion leader out here in the real world i'm not sure uh so you've got so i just thought it was really interesting how this was a whole other culture from inside prison and yeah i'm uh, probably different for reading that did not know all that went on So here's the deal. We know he's going to probably be in PC or ADSEG, but where he is assigned is up to the Department of Corrections. And I thought that was interesting because I go, well, is he going to end up at Folsom? Now, there's a good chance he could end up at Folsom if it's a plea because they, well, let me share this with you. But it looks like they try to put you kind of close to where your family might be. But it's not a guarantee at all. It has everything to do with crowding and all this other stuff. So let me tell you how this works. when you when you when it first happens so let's say he takes a plea we go through the penalty phase that whole thing the plea negotiation the statements all the stuff that's going to happen and, and we'll figure I'll we'll go into that I'll figure out how that um all works and you take a plea I'll go do the research but let's just say he's done good he's up for transfer he's being transported to somewhere here's where he goes he goes to a, pr- a prison reception center the inmate must go to the, through the reception and classification process, and this can take up to 120 days. Okay, so that's like four months, right? Once all the inmate's case factors are reviews reviewed, he's assigned a classification score. Now, this starts to get interesting. He will then participate in initial classification, uh, classification, class easy for me to say. Classification committee and be recommended for appropriate placement at an institution based on their level. So, okay, you get a classification sto- score. Everybody participates and you the committee looks at this. Then they find the institutions where they can take someone with your score. Your score determines what level you are. A lot of people say level one, two, three, and four. Those are the levels. It's that classification score that indicates your level. An inmate's family location, this is the part I was just talking about, the inmate's family location is taken into consideration. However, being placed near family is not guaranteed due to many other factors. Okay, so now we're still in this reception process, right? There's still like intake, what the rest of us would call it intake, but it's like reception. So that four month process, right? During this process, there are no family visits. They get one half of the maximum monthly canteen draw. So. I hope you know this, that you really, really, if you're gonna survive in prison, you have to be getting money from somewhere because if you don't have any money, you don't have anything. You can't get a cigarette, you can't get a granola bar, you can't get coffee. Like you can't get anything if you don't have some money. Well, they're allowed half of the maximum monthly draw. Um, They also can have telephone calls on an emergency basis as determined by the staff and no personal packages then is this thing um when they're in reception they can also get it they also get a phone call within the first week and every month thereafter every month so we're talking about four months four phone calls and these can make these calls are made collect to the account a family sets up and these are monitored by the institution so what that they're not getting privacy and the call is collect and then they can also receive mail and have writing supplies Um, the majority of prisons allow 10 stamped envelopes and a writing tablet to be mailed in the first class mail to the inmate, inmate, 10 stamps, a tablet, that's it. Can they have, yes, visitors? They can, but they have to, visitors have to apply and be approved and they have to visit at the reception, at the reception center. And it doesn't sound like it's easy, honestly. OK, so let's move on. How is the department now there? Now I've been through reception. Here I go. I'm going to go get classified, right? I've got to get my level and find out what I've got to get my score. I'm sorry, my score, my placement score and then my level. So here's how this works. Each inmate is assigned to a facility based on their security level, and it has to correspond to their placement score so these are determined through a review of the inmates case factors and include their age the crime or crimes they have committed if violence was used if they've been arrested before and incarcerated and their gang involvement that'll make sense to me each year that they are reviewed um and perf- and and performed by a counselor a review is performed by a counselor to determine if the inmate meets the criteria to have their score reduced. Meaning, you know, when somebody says good behavior, that's what this would be. So you can get your score reduced. You can get better placement over time if you behave well. And if you behave like a jackass, you will also, your score can go up. So let's go through the scores. There's four levels. So here's the scores. I love that there's these points. Okay. So an inmate with a placement score of zero to 18 gets to be placed in a level one facility. These are the camps consisting primarily of open dormitories with low security perimeters. Uh, isn't, aren't those called the country club kind of jails and prisons? I guess they are. That's where, you know, those rich white men go, right? It has I'm sorry. Political, stop myself. Okay. Number two, an inmate with a placement score of 19 to 35 so there you go, another, yeah, 18 points, will be placed in a level two facility. What is a level two facility? Well, it consists primarily of open or dormitories with a secure perimeter, which may include armed coverage. <laughs> it may include armed coverage, or you could get one of the level twos without guns. I don't know, I, what does that mean? They're gonna just uh, call you names? I, I'm not sure. Okay, now we'll go to level three. An inmate with a placement score of 36 to 59 shall be placed in a level three facility. Level three facilities primarily have a secure perimeter with armed coverage and housing units with cells adjacent to exterior walls. So, yeah, that's now we're starting to get somewhere because now this is some serious stuff. You're not in an open dormitory, you actually have a cell that you have to share. With someone who I'm sure is lovely and you hope maybe isn't flatulent. Okay. And then you have inmates with a placement score of 60 and above. And those are in the beloved place of a level four. And level four facilities have a secure perimeter with internal and external, internal and external armed coverage and housing units or cell blocks with non-adjacent, with cells non-adjacent to exterior walls. Okay, what the heck was cells not adjacent to exterior walls? I guess there's cell islands in the middle. I don't know why the exterior wall is very, very important, but I guess that means they could actually not be able to see outside at all. Um, That's provided there's a hole in the wall, which can be good or bad depending on where you're housed. I know my friend's friend is housed at Lompoc, and that hole in the wall is freezing because Lompoc is as cold as San Quentin in terms of temperature. Okay, so it's our understanding, and ours being the victim's understanding, is that D'Angelo would qualify for level four. So after they review all these factors, the um, staff representative has to go ahead and say, yes, they get uh, this is where they're gonna go, and that could take another 45 to 60 days. And then the inmate has to wait for a bus seat. So now they're still at, um, remember they're still at the the Welcome Center. That's not the whole, the Welcome Center. I don't even remember what it's called now. Anyway, they are still there and then it could take another 45 to 60 days to actually get out to your main assignment, to your level four assignment. And they have to wait for a bus seat and an available bed at the endorsed institution. So where will he end up? We don't know, but providing he survives the coronavirus threat, And there are nine facilities that are in California that are listed as level four. And now I ask you, as I wrap this up, do you think it's wrong for us to place bets? Is there an over-under on this? (sighs) Somebody out there is industrious industrious enough to start this. Maybe we should start putting money on the line of which prison he's going to end up in. Okay, that's enough for today. I want you to go look at someone you love, but don't touch them because I don't need any of you getting the coronavirus. Until next time, thank you for listening. Chewing on a pizza grass, walking down the road. Tell me how long you gonna stay here, Joe?